You're listening to the Ship Bob Operator Series. Each week, your host, Casey Armstrong, e-com veteran, is joined by founders, operators, and insiders who are bringing along their stories and data to give you the exclusive inside scoop and tactics from those who have been there, done it, and gotten their hands dirty. You can tune in for a live recording Wednesdays. Head to operators.shipbob.com for the details. But until then, enjoy this audio replay. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 18. As usual, I'm very excited about our guest today. I will get more to that in a minute. To kick things off, you guys all know the drill. Let's drop in where you're, uh, where you're calling in from. As always, I'm here in sunny Southern California. I should do one of these outside, but I always feel bad about my East Coast counterparts, but I guess it's summer everywhere. And then we have Roderick Morris, who I'll introduce in a second. But uh, Rod, where are you calling in from today? Boise, Idaho. Boise, Idaho. Above my garage in Boise, Idaho. Yeah. Nice. It looks like a nice little setup. You have the live edge table. You've got the flat screen. Yeah. You know, I mean, it it didn't look like this like three months ago, but I just sort of, it's a big e-commerce time for everybody right now. So same for me. I was just like, I got to make my space a little better. So I just kept buying stuff. (laughs) <laughs> I love it. My wife is actually really good at building things. I'm not, but I, I actually went and bought some live edge wood and refinished it and did it all myself. Ordered wow. some, some um, I don't know, steel steel legs from some hipster company in Portland and put it all together myself. So I was actually pretty proud. But I guess that's what you do when you're inside all yeah. the time. COVID nineteen renaissance, man. Exactly, something like that. Uh, let me update my LinkedIn. So let's see, where, where, where's everybody calling in from today? We've got, yeah, Boise, Chicago, Cape Cod. We've got our international people as always. We've got Canada, some Montreal, Calgary, I should say. Ireland, there we go. I love it. China, Ohio, Philly in the house. I'll let Nick pronounce the New York. Philly, Greece. Oh, we should just, we should just move all this to Greece. Some England, love it. Awesome. Always, always people from all over the place. So I know you didn't come here to hear me talk about my renaissance migration in life, but to hear um, from, would you prefer Roderick or Rod? Or do you not? I think Rod's Rod's easiest. Let's do Rod. Okay. We'll we'll roll with Rod. So Rod is the co-founder and CEO of Love Every. Uh, Co-founder and president. Co-founder and president. Co-founder Jessica is CEO, but we split pretty much everything we do. Perfect. So Jessica is the CEO. Yep. If If you guys aren't familiar with Love Every... Uh, they provide stage-based play kits, and feel free to interject and correct me where I'm wrong here. Stage-based play kits for developing young kids' brains, from their investigator kit to sensory kit to the new block set, they have it all. I've actually been a customer for, I think, almost three years now. Huge fan of the product. I was, I was telling Rod before that I think my wife and I are probably more excited when the things arrive than the kids, just because we're like, you know, we get to play with it as well. Um, and we have like a little love every section in in the downstairs of our house where, uh, especially for our 10 month old, where, you know, she sits and plays and just all sorts of good stuff. So love the product, what you guys have built. Before we get into like the nitty gritty, would love to hear more about why you guys saw, thought that there was like a gap in the market. So I've known Jessica for a long time. She's my wife's best friend growing up. They played basketball together in high school. So our families would vacation together. And Jessica and I would talk business often. Yeah, our spouses didn't love that. We were always talking business like on vacation. But um, she had this this thing that she started doing when she had her first child 
which was she kind of realized early on that she wasn't into the products that she was getting, like toys that she was buying or being gifted. And I think it was her birthing instructor and passed her this tattered old doctoral thesis that hadn't been published that listed different ways you could develop your child's brain. And it kind of turned the light on for her. She started designing products at home and it seemed like they were working. And she started talking about this with me and how she wanted to try to find a way to make it into a business. And we began talking about what if we could like, you know, find a way to turn this into something that parents get just when they need it, uh, buy a subscription and like, hey, we could have content around this. We could do a lot. And it sounded like something that could actually be a really big company. And there was a lot we had to figure out about how to get there. I mean, we started with one product, but, but what struck us as different, I think, was that while there are a lot of cool toys out there and, and things for children, there are also a lot that just don't feel like they're of purpose. Like they're not actually like equipping a parent to make a difference for their child or to actually like understand what their child is into at a given moment. They're just kind of stuff that you buy because like you don't know what to get and you see it on a shelf with your kid's age on it. And it just seemed like there was, there was an opportunity to do something just fundamentally different. And we both just sort of clicked with that vision and, so yeah, let's just, let's go for it. Let's try to do it. That's awesome. I, I know that sometimes I feel like a curmudgeon, but I'll, I'll tell like my siblings and my wife's siblings and, and our parents, like I have like a no more plastic rule in the house where I'm like, I can't see other than Legos. I cannot see another plastic toy or item enter our house. So talk me through how you guys approached your first product and maybe what that was and how that's evolved because your guys' stuff, it's, it's very well-made wooden toys, which is very kind of Euro and bringing that over here into the US. Sure, um, and thanks for the kind words. So I think, like I said, we knew from the beginning that we had this whole vision of like a, a whole host of SKUs that we would be creating and, and, and bundling up by subscription and sending. And, and we wanted to design everything ourselves. We wanted this like feeling of a system but we knew that we had to make just like one product first to get started and a couple of reasons why. One was we wanted to see like were people responding to like our approach and our brand because we didn't want to with physical product, you know, you got to like lay out a bunch of money and order a bunch of inventory. And it's a bad situation if your thesis is wrong and you've bought a lot of stuff and tied up all your capital. We also didn't want to, you know, try to like spend more capital than we needed to, to first sort of like get traction and then raise more money to start building the business. So we picked one product to start and we picked what's called a, a play gym or an activity gym. Some people call it a play mat or a baby gym. And the reason why we picked that was we wanted something definitely for the first year of life for a baby. We wanted something that we could make that was like a known category that we could we could try to make something better because we we didn't want to try to change buying behavior right out the gate. We just wanted to be able to prove that like something that had our brand ethos that had additional content, uh, developmental stage based content as part of it because we provided a booklet with it. Something that was really science based, had our aesthetic, could work. And so like we didn't want to like also then introduce subscription. And buying subscription for your kid, so we picked Play Gym. It's, you, you, you did or did not want to introduce? Did not want to introduce all of that in one go because it's like then we'd be asking people to change their behavior around buying toys and to go for a new brand and pay a price premium. Just like too many different things. Uh, so so we picked the Play Gym because it's developmental. It's one of the most registered for items in the category. 
you know, a lot of investors are like, well, why are you doing this? That's a super crowded category. I mean, there's a million of them. And like, it also, by the way, it looks like you're going to charge like two or three times as much as other products. But like, we really felt like that's what we needed to charge to be able to have costs that we put into the product to get to a different quality level to provide extra content and do other stuff. So, so we designed that. That whole process was interesting as well as the design of the brand. We iterated multiple times on the brand, then on the brand aesthetic with multiple prototypes. Um, when we started working on it, uh, our cost base was 3x what we finally got it to before we launched. Um, so it was an untenable business at first, <laughs> which was pretty scary. Um, but ultimately, we got that all worked out and we launched it in November of 2017. And then, you know, fast forward three years, we've sold 150,000 plus of that Play Gem, uh, you know, since the launch. And then we subsequently launched three years of Play Kit subscription and we've got over 100,000 active subscribers to the Play Kits right now. Um, and we, we're making other stuff too. So, so the Play Kits, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like it's, it's also a product that goes well with the, the rest of their toys as well, correct? Correct, yeah. So with the Play Kits, what we're trying to do is, first we start like with an approach that, that takes a look at developmentally what's happening with a child during a particular segment of their life. So if, if, if they're a baby, we, we look at a two-month segment. If they're you know kind of one years old or one year old or older, then we'll look at like a three month segment, and we look at what all the science tells us children are into. We also go to parents' homes and and ask questions about what children are into and what they're playing with now, and then we build a thesis around like that year and then around each of the time periods, and then we begin to prototype different products that we think will speak to that either our own version of products that we've seen in the marketplace or things that are just brand new inventions by us. And it's really a mix of both. But in both cases, we're putting our own sort of touches and, and thought into it. We'll run several rounds of tests with parents before we finally figure out what is not only highest use to parents, but more important, like what's holding a child's attention? Like what are they playing with? And for us to be successful at that, like it's definitely gotta be different from what, what the kids already have. And it's definitely also gotta work within the system of Love Every products where like it's complementary to what they what what the child would have received before if they were a subscriber before. I want to dig into something there real quick, but like with the play kits, and I know we have some people on on the line that are earlier in the process, some that are thinking how do they pivot, some that are in the million or 10 million range and thinking about how do they accelerate. But something that's interesting with like your first product and it fitting in with like their broader set of toys, it, it also reminds me of uh, Paul Howdegy and the BK Beauty brand who we had on last week where they had their first product were brushes. So like makeup application brushes, because no matter what makeup you have, you're always going to need a brush. And so it's just interesting to think through like your hero product or maybe your V1, it's something that fits into the broader picture. But question about the price point, because that is interesting and it's funny. And then I actually want to get into the investor thing because you're getting pushed back and you're like, hey, this is crowded. There's a bunch of stuff here. Like why you guys? So I don't know if you think much about like the Veblen brands concept and where price is essentially like, a feature mm -hmm. in the product, but how did you guys think about that? And also going from zero to one with really no brand, obviously, because you have no brand on day one, like how, how did you bridge that gap so quickly? So a couple things. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we always think of price as part of the value proposition and part of what we're signaling to our customer base. We have to balance that against accessibility of our products, right? I mean, we want, we want to get our products to as many families as, as we can. So we, we try to think about both sides of it. And then we also obviously like 
we're a direct to consumer brand. We need to be able to like handle like a direct to consumer CAC and have enough contribution margin where the business isn't upside down and, and looks good. So uh, when we thought about like price, when we thought about like what we were what we were doing and and how we knew, you know, kind of like that we were we were confident. I think a lot of it came from testing with parents, to be honest. Just a lot of prototyping. We and by the way, in addition to the prototyping that we did on the Play Gym, we had prototyped a full year of subscription product as well. Even though we didn't end up launching that for another I think, nine months after we launched the Play Gym, like we we'd been testing all of that as well. So we and we tested with families of all income levels, like all over America. And then even before that, we had worked quite a bit on the brand. In fact, you know, kind of like if you, if you want to think about like where we spent money and where we invested the most, we actually we overinvested on brand, both in terms of writers, in terms of designers. Uh, we worked with a very high end design firm at the beginning, a firm called Pentagram in New York. You know, our, our little you know Idaho based company, you know, kind of we were flying flying to Manhattan and, and going to branding meetings because we thought it was just so so important. Do you think that was the right move or would you do it differently? 100%. Like I would never, ever, ever discount effort, time, work, money put into brand, especially at formation if you're a direct-to-consumer business because it just drives so much else that you do. Because like once we had worked through a lot of the initial brand thinking, it then not only did it like make everything look better and help justify the price, but it also, it was a lens through which we could look at anything we were doing with the product or the marketing or anything else, and whether or not the customer was responding to it the way that we wanted them responding to the brand, and we would know if we were making a good decision or a bad decision. The other thing that would happen you know, to the investor question is like, for sure, some investors would push back on like where we settled on price or you know, kind of the, the, the crowded category or, or whatever, but not all of them did. Uh, and I think this was another thing, especially for like seed stage, early stage, that was really important for us is having investors who just were like total believers, who really bought in. And with an emotional product, like a product for babies, product for kids, it really helps if you're talking to somebody who's a parent, especially if they have kids exactly in that age range and they, they would be who you would be marketing to. And when we saw strong feedback from those investors, when we had good feedback from the people we were testing with as well, like it just gave us confidence. But even then, like we, we didn't know. I mean, nobody ever knows. So, so, so I want to get into the user testing with kids in a second. And again, back to the VC thing. But you mentioned contribution margin. You mentioned brand. You mentioned customer acquisition costs. Those are like three of the most important metrics on day one to think about. Those are like three of the most important metrics on day whatever, 3,000. Yeah. But you can't have it all on day one. And they all impact each other for better or for worse. Yeah. And so let's say between brand, customer acquisition costs, and kind of proving that you can scale it, and then also contribution margin, proving that you actually have, you know, to use your word, a tenable business. Like, how did you prioritize those in your head? And how yeah. is that? Let, let's start there, and then we can get into how The brand going. came first. And I would say as a component of that quality and safety, right? Because, I mean, making products for babies, it's got to be high quality. It's got to be safe, um, which are components of the brand. But I I put them off to the side because they're just sort of like table stakes, right? And it's always got to come first because if you have a very profitable business, but it doesn't have good brand, you're not going to have like a, a massive company out of that. Or if you've got great CAC, but like, you know, kind of like it's not profitable, 
But you know, let, let's say you got great CAC, it's profitable, but like there's no brand, you don't have a business, but you can have you can have a brand, not have contribution margin, but have like a path to contribution margin and, and be okay. But I think like what we wanted was like have the brand, figure out how we can market it, and know that we can like fund it to get to a certain scale point where you know kind of like, okay, if we know that this much cash is coming back for every single one of these that we sell. And we know this is roughly what it's costing us to sell. Then we could probably get up to like this revenue number by by this time, and then we run out of money. So we probably want to raise money, like you know, kind of at this point before we get to that point. And that's what our revenue is going to be there. So this is kind of what we think the business is going to be worth, and what how much we think we could raise, and then and then this is what we think we would try to do like after that. Cool. And so we'll try to find some resources for everybody in the audience if you want more on just like customer acquisition costs and contribution margin. I mean, an example, it's not really a D2C brand, but like WeWork, they had a brand, that's for sure. And they were growing like crazy, but their contribution margin was going in the opposite direction. And so it's just, you know, it's always a fine balance. And, and whether they got to a certain scale and were able to course correct kind of TBD. Also, usually you guys are flooding us with questions, maybe, and then I've got a bunch. I'm really excited about <laughs> hearing from Rob. Yeah. So one, one, one quick comment okay. on that, I would say, is like, it's definitely, I mean, now the brand is well established and we, we are looking for ways, you know, kind of like to create new experiences of that brand, but contribution margin, you know, and, and CAC, like we've, like, I would say like going like series A to series B and, and since series B, like so, sort of like heading toward like, uh, you know, kind of a certain size. CAC kind of like took on importance because we had to show that we could get that under control. And now I would say, you know, we're approaching profitability at the end of this year and we're getting to a point where our capital structure and our attractiveness of a business is being determined by like bigger markets and and bigger investors and profitability is now becoming more important. So you're right. Like the importance changes as the business goes on. But I think like without a brand kind of like from the very beginning till now, like you, you got nothing. And how do you measure brand? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I know there are platforms out there where people try to measure brand equity and things like that. I mean, for us, I think the way that we, you know, kind of like measure the effectiveness of our brand is probably, I guess like there's probably two ways to think about it. One would be in terms of engagement that you see with the brand. And that can be, you know, kind of positive feedback on social comments and likes and things like that. It can be, you know, you know, shared stories, organic posts reposts, it can be referrals, things like that. And then the other way in which you can look at the strength of the brand is around sort of revenue dynamics, both like, how are you getting the customers? So are you seeing an increasing percentage coming from organic, coming from word of mouth? And then also, how well are you retaining them? So are you, you know, kind of, is your brand strong enough that, you know, and your experience strong enough that the people are continuing to go with you? And I think it's really, those are inextricably linked, customer experience and brand. So how did you and your co-founder, like, why did you decide to go the VC route? And when and how did you dis- believe that you had a, a VC scale business? So we were kind of funky because we definitely have named VC investors in our cap table. But when we began, it was more angel led. I think that, you know, the first question that we had to ask ourselves was, how much money do we think that we need to do what we want to do? And what kind of capital do we want contributing to that? So in the early days, uh, you know, our first round was, you know, a set of convertible notes for like around 3 million bucks, a little more than 3 million bucks. 
you know, that was about what we ended up determining that we needed just to get a product to market and show traction, which was, and that was kind of like the milestone we wanted to get to. And my co-founder and I are both, you know, kind of experienced entrepreneurs and we wanted to have freedom to make mistakes and, you know, kind of like, we kind of didn't want to add, add more board members or, you know, kind of have too much like outsized influence in what we were doing. So we actually put together a, a whole bunch of angels from our, our personal network to put that 3 million together. And then even when we did the series A, which, uh, you know, came like say a year, year and a half after that, which was for six, a little more than six, we put institutional money into that. But two thirds of that was angels as well. Mostly our angels re-upping. So even then we didn't, and we priced that around ourselves, which is kind of unorthodox. But even then, because we were like, well, we're getting into subscription. We really want to just sort of like really prove out product market fit of subscription too. We just want like a little more freedom. And because we have some experience and, and strong networks, we were able to do that. When it came to our series B and- you know, we well, were, real, real, quick, real quick on the series A, when you say yeah. you priced it yourself, that's because that based off subscription and the path you were heading, you thought you could- put a higher price tag on it. You didn't want to go through the rigmarole of talking to a million VCs. Like what, what drove that? So we talked to a number of VCs, like kind of like late in the cycle, but what drove it was we, we didn't want to deal with the dynamics of like getting a lead investor and kind of having them work price with like their coalition of VCs necessarily. I mean, the other dynamic here is, my experience with capital before was very different from my co-founders. So she built her whole last company up, Happy Family, which is a big organic baby food company. She built that up entirely with angels and then some debt capital that was socially responsible debt capital. So she was very new to institutional equity capital, whereas last company I was a part of, a company called Opower, it was an NEA, KKR, sorry, NEA, Kleiner, Excel, and then even before that, very institutional seed stage money. Kind of company. And so I was coming from the other end of it and we kind of came together. Like, and so we did it, you know, kind of like the kind of her way in the first round, but using the money came about 50 50 from our two networks. And then, you know, kind of in the A round, we were like, okay, we need to get institutional money into this because, and we need to have experience doing that because we know that in the B round or any future rounds, the checks are going to be too big. Mm -hmm. We're not going to be able to go somebody. And I think like to answer your other question about, well, why did you want to check like this size or whatever? It's because like we had an idea in our head, like, okay, this is, this is how big a business we can grow. We want to be aggressive. We want to raise institutional capital so we can do it quickly because we don't want you know, more competitors to come into the market and copy what we're doing. So like, let's go for it. And so like we knew, we knew in that series A that we wanted to have a mix. And so, you know, in fact, like a number of the institutionals who were in that mix in the A ended up being pretty significant uh, contributors to the series B where we did 20 million in equity capital. And then on top of that, we got an $8 million debt commitment, you know, kind of coincident with that round. And like, for instance, Maveron, a well-known consumer VC who led the series B, they were a small participant in the A or Reach Capital, who was a small participant in the series A, then converted, you know, then participated in a big way in a convertible note between the A and the B. And then they were a, a contributor in the B, and they also brought in and introduced Chan Zuckerberg Initiative into the round as well. Um, and that was a high value add as well. Um, Google Ventures also, you know, kind of that's, that's a new one who came in during the B, but, uh, you know, we came, came to know them through our relationship, again, with Reach Capital, who introduced us.
So, you know, kind of, it was good that we had some institutional coming in by the A because otherwise it just would have been too sort of all over the place too like down home for like a $20 million equity round. And something I do want to call it there because, you know, a lot of our attendees might not be at the point where they can raise from, especially a lot of the name brands you mentioned, and then maybe they'll stop at seed or stop at A before, you know, not necessarily have to get to B because, you know, different market caps and market size opportunities, et cetera. But what's interesting is both you and your co-founder approached your prior companies where you worked at very differently. Mm-hmm. And then you took kind of like a blended model, which, which I love for this. And so the point is, is like, obviously there's no one path. And so right. you do it this way, whatever he or she might do it that way. And it's just, it, it's what works well for your business and what works well today. Um, so I think it's just so interesting to learn from so many people and you, yeah. you pick and choose what you like. How did you balance? And then we're getting some good questions in the audience. So sorry, I'll jump to those in a second. How did you balance, you know, from, from giving up ownership and, and taking equity or giving up equity, which has its pros and cons, and then to debt, which of course has its pros and cons. And, and for you guys, where you guys maybe need a big cash outlay for buying the inventory. So how did you balance like equity and debt in your thought process? Neither of us really had even been thinking about debt until through the A round. And one of our seed investors, uh, no, not seed investors, one of our A round investors, Founder Collective, which is a well-known seed fund, the partner who we worked with, Michael Rosenblum, said he was he was a former entrepreneur, and, and he said, "Hey, you know, um, you guys should really think about debt as a way to just sort of like add to your balance sheet because it can just give you flexibility so that you don't get pushed into a situation where you have to go out and raise more equity capital when you don't want to." Um, and we took that to heart. Uh, he introduced us to a firm that kind of like helps. You know, very, very small companies find a, a lender. After that, uh, when we got to the B, uh, we kind of at that point were much more familiar with kind of the value of debt because we saw like, hey, this is capital, the same as the, ca- the, same as the cash that we got from a VC, but the, the hit on our cap table is much less significant. And as long as we can continue to grow the business and pay off this debt, it's a good idea to, to do some of this. And then we found when we did the Series B and we had a name lead investor and we had like known funds behind them that suddenly the interest that the well-known banks had in us was, was completely different. And it was wild to me because we would not have had that success uh, raising debt if it weren't for those named funds that were behind us who even like introduced us and, and got conversations going. And, and I've, I've been told, I, I, I've since learned this, that, that the way you want to do it is if you're raising a venture capital round, like that's the time to go and, and get debt generally because um, your business is never going to, you know, look better from a risk perspective, you know, kind of at least during that part of its cycle than then. And these kinds of debt companies are, are really interested in, um, in what your institutional backing is. So, so, uh, so, you're, so you're saying approach debt at the same time as equity or approach debt immediately after? I, I would say immediately after, but if like once, once you're, you can kind of parallel path it, right? Because closing a venture capital round is not something that you get done in like a week. <laughs> um, you know, like there are, first there are months and months of meetings. And then even when you've like narrowed it down to like, you know, a smaller number who might submit a term sheet, it's months. And then even once you've got, you know, your term sheet, you know, it can be months to close. So that all takes time. I think for us, and we ended up taking uh, taking debt from Bridge Bank and buying out the prior debt that was in there. For us, once Mavron had committed, we knew that they were our lead, and we were just filling in the the rest of the twenty million. 
the partner at Maveron, who's on our board now, um, who led that was uh, is, is Jason Stouffer, and he was he suggested, hey, I think I think you should talk to a couple of these banks now and go ahead and get it going. And so we heeded his advice. And it was good advice. Let's go back into product development, customer development, and all that stuff. And and I want to get into some of Lynn's questions in a second. You're testing with kids, and your little ones. I have little ones. Like there's no more. I don't know. There's no bigger variable in, in life than like kids, yeah. uh, or they should say anything that's more unpredictable. Any funny stories or ridiculous examples of like testing these products, you know, with with kids and with parents involved, and that's a whole other can of worms. Oh man, I mean, there are so many stories there. I think like I'm trying to pick a good one. I mean, it's just like so many that come to mind of you know, kind of products just being complete failures that we came up with where we were just convinced that it was going to be great and, and the kid didn't love it. But I guess like one, one thing that's kind of funny to me, one of our most loved products is just the, the weirdest thing, but kids loved it in testing. It's this thing we call the fuzzy bug shrub. So it's, it's a weird name for a weird product. It looks kind of like this, like it's supposed to be a shrub or a bush, but it, it, it can also be confused for like a mushroom or something. It's just this strange plastic thing surrounded by like a felt and then you can pop open a lid and get these like fabric bugs that you can affix to it. And it was like, we were just like, really? Like, but the kids loved it. And then it was just like, we made it, it looked so ridiculous, but we were like, well, let's try it. Let's, and yeah, hell, let's call it the fuzzy bug shrub. And it's, it turns out, I mean, cause we monitor the success of every single product and every kit. And it's, it's one of the, one of the best performing ones. Like, I mean, you really have, it's funny, like you have to, you look at it, you look at a child and you see how focused they are on the product and you know you just can't deny it so like any assumptions that you have about what they're going to like or what they're going to play with for a long time it kind of goes out the window once you see what they're actually doing especially if you see pattern match across like a bunch of different kids it's so fascinating the the consumer space where with physical goods where you like literally need to be in the room with them yeah. where the beauty of like software which is a majority of my background like you can use data logs and analytics to extract so much information. And, you know, nothing's better than talking to the customer or doing user testing and watching them in real time, for sure. But you, you can still get so much information, again, from, from logs and analytics. For you guys, it's, it's watching these kids. And, and it's interesting, too, where you're actually, all the main parties are aligned, where as a parent, when I introduce a new toy to my kid, like, I want them to be using it for as long as possible, and then using it multiple times. And mm-hmm. then the kids want something that they'll use for a long time and multiple times, and, and, and so do you. So it's just, it's just fascinating on how like, you're trying to extract that from, from these kids. What product were you so bullish on and it just flopped? We initially were thinking that parents would want, you know, kind of some feeding items as well in one of their kits. And so we made like this this bib and, and we made what uh, my co-founder, you know, kind of calls like the perfect spoon for feeding because she was, she's really passionate about feeding, um, having started a baby food company before. And it was this really like perfectly sized spoon with like a slightly long handle it passed all the safety tests in spite of that. And this, this beautiful bib and some great content on food. And we were like, yeah, I mean, of course, like parents, parents want this because like they're trying to figure out like feeding. And it just was like, it was a total dud. It was like one of the most hated sets of products that we, we had in the kit because folks are just like, yeah, don't give me that. I'm really much more interested in, in something that's going to be developmental. And that actually was a good message for us and like kind of made us rededicate ourselves to like our brand 
being about development and I think really informed not only other products that we made, but even like content that we put out on Instagram or the way in which we'd orient our messages around paid acquisition ads. I love that. And again, maybe here I'm just like self-projecting too much with my kids and we've been like in lockdown for four months. So we've <laughs> been with them all the time. But it's interesting too, where like, what is the job of the product? And for yours, it's to like entertain the kids, but also allow the parents to have fun with them. And feeding at times can be difficult. Yeah. And so maybe it's like that now you're like kind of entering that, that go between where it's like, no, the toys are so where I can like zone out and have fun. The feeding thing is like where I have to really zone in and it's a pain. Like don't mix the two. Just let me have fun with this product. It could be. It could be. I mean, I think we continue to have questions about feeding. I think that there are places where we can we can provide value on it. But I think like, you know, there was there was core business to take care of first around, you know, helping create opportunities, not only for focused kids, but for parents to know what the heck their kid is going to be interested in at that time and, and why. And so we just rededicated to that. So in designing the products, here, here's a question from Lynn. You mentioned testing to drive product offerings. How did you go about doing product design, you know, from let's say on day one and then, you know, today? So it's quite a bit more sophisticated today than it was on day one, but it was, it was pretty good on day one. I mean, I think like, so to start with, I mean, you're, you're making prototypes and you would start by making, you know, really, really rough prototypes. Like if you can, if you can buy an approximation in a store or online somehow just to test and, and see what people like about something, then you can do that. Or, or if, if you're, if you're inventing something, then, you know, you find, you find a seamstress or you find, you know, you, you get an engineer to work on it in a shop and like you, you build a set of them as cheaply and easily as you can. Maybe you 3d print something. And so we did all of that before. I think one thing that was different early on is we actually took much longer on, on testing sprints. So to test our subscription, we actually spent a year, you know, sending different versions of like kind of made up kits like that cobbled together between like things we bought and things that we created shipping those out to parents for like a year and then seeing how they they reacted tweaking you know the next box uh, each time based on what we were hearing from them we, we were also testing different kinds of content videos and and you know kind of like emails with pdfs and so like a test sprint i guess was you know basically like the time period that a box would be relevant so in some cases we were doing one every month and in other cases it was every other month and so like that's how it, it was then Today, like we'll we'll do a sprint in you know two or three weeks, and it'll be a lot more of it'll be virtual by nece by necessity now. But even beforehand, uh, you know we would do more virtual to get more feedback faster, and our, our prototypes are much more sophisticated. What and this is another question from Lynn? What do you look at for what metrics are like a product has like passed user testing? So it's it's really all about how much time the child is spending with the product and, you know, kind of like what parents have to say about how indispensable that product is. And then once you've got those, you know, depending on how excited you are about the product, then you have to see if you can actually like afford to make it in a way that's attractive. And then you, you can kind of work toward designs that are based off of what you think will hit your cost target. And you can bring those back for feedback again. So here's a, a question from Asha, and this is a never ending process, I'd say, but what process did you go through to develop the brand and customer persona? Because you did mention that you would talk to people across the US, different 
income levels. So how did you focus in on that? So this is interesting because we actually wanted to create a brand that would appeal to multiple personas. So we we got access to different you know pieces of research that gave us a view into the psychographics of moms uh, because we we had a feeling that moms would be our primary customers and it turns out that they are um, although men are one of our fastest growing segments if you want to split by gender but we we had a sense of you know kind of like there's a mom who wants to be an expert and up on all the trends there's a mom who wants to feel organized there's a mom who wants to you know just bond. Uh, and, and there were all these different psychographics that we took a look at and we said, okay, well, we could just make a product for, you know, so-called tiger moms, but that's not going to be a product that's going to become like a huge brand. Uh, and we could build a whole brand around that maybe and, and like just sell to that customer, but that's like not a ton of market space. And that's not a lot of margin for error either. You got to make a perfect product for that person. And so we deliberately set out to create a brand that was going to be broader. And so like, for instance, this even like came down to the way that we named the company. So when we started working on this business, I don't think either, either Jessica or I thought this was going to end up being the, the commercial name in the end, but our working name for the business was Smart Baby. Now we knew that like that would be a very limiting name and it wouldn't appeal to all segments, right? And so when we worked through it, um, and we, we worked through more than 100 names with help from consultants and branding people, but a lot of them came from us too. The name that we settled on, Love Every, is definitively like a, a mass sort of a sentiment because love is universal. Love everything you do. Love every love every toe. Love every snuggle. Love every rattle. Love every, every moment. And we knew that that was going to have a universal appeal. And then when we worked through our, our selling propositions, we knew that we had to have products that were beautiful, that were gonna to appeal to a certain type of parent. We knew that we needed to have an offering that was organized, that was rooted in science, that had you know kind of like special information. And it was all based around what we knew about the psychographics of different kinds of moms. And we knew that different elements would appeal more to, you know, there would be different spikes for these different moms, but that we would end up with basically a new mass brand in the process. So with this mass brand, I believe 100% of your sales today are direct-to-consumer? That's not quite right. So the majority of our sales are direct-to-consumer, but there is a segment that is wholesale. Okay. Um, But it's it's primarily online. So our largest wholesaler is Amazon. We don't sell subscription items through wholesalers. We want the direct relationship with the customer. And um, for us, our subscription business is our flagship business. But we think that wholesale is a great way for people to become aware of our products. So... We've had a wholesale relationship with Amazon from the beginning. Baby List is another big wholesaler for us. Uh, you can also find some of our products on uh, you know, Target.com, Pottery Barn Kids, Anthropology, places like that. Do you sell within Anthropology and Target, or just those are all .com relationships? Okay. So, like in terms of on shelf, uh, we're on shelf in some specialty retailers, but not that many. There's just so much of the business that's like shifted to direct for all of those folks. And then the other thing that's a factor for them is our approach on like wholesale pricing is just, it's, it's very driven by our focus on D2C. So we're not structured to like give like a huge markup opportunity for a wholesaler, like a traditional toy brand. And that works for some folks and not for others. Um, it's easier for folks to do it if they put it on their online site than if they, they buy physical inventory and put on shelves and are hoping for turns. So. Yeah. 
it's a it's a dynamic of of being a you know kind of a digitally native business. As an upstart, how did you get any leverage on these wholesalers where you didn't want to give them this massive markup and maybe incremental margin that they would typically want? Like how did you how did you you know control some of that power? <laughs> You know, the only leverage comes from the demand for the product, right? And a willingness to like walk away from a wholesale opportunity. Mm. Um, so for us, we knew that the core value of the business that we were creating was in, you know, recurring direct, directly sold revenue and a direct relationship with customers. So, you know, absolutely. We love the exposure that wholesale channels give us and we appreciate all the support we get from wholesale channels, but, uh, you know, kind of the margin that's going to work for us, it needs to work for us for us to, to do it. Otherwise, you know, it's not something that we need in our lives. It's not, it's not healthy for the business and it's not the core of what our business is. Um, so I think like being really clear on that from the beginning is what gave us leverage. That and, and the fact that there's high customer demand. So even if you feel that um, you're not getting enough margin on our product, if you're a retailer, if, if our product is being asked for by lots of customers who are coming to you and you believe that our product is going to draw people into your store who are then going to buy other products that are more profitable, you're probably still going to be interested in our products. So I love seeing how true brands, like you guys are a real brand. I love seeing how brands navigate the relationship with Amazon. Again, as an example, Away, who's definitely built a brand in like the, the luggage and travel space, they just don't sell on Amazon. There's a crazy search volume for it. Their competitors are definitely, or especially pre-COVID, benefiting from that because they can just bid on Away terms and, and suck up that, that market share. Yeah. As a luxury brand, how did you evaluate Amazon, which is often known for more commodity products, in utilizing that with your building your brand? I'm flattered by your use of the word luxury. I, I think I think of this uh, maybe a little bit more as like a premium essential or something like that. Where you know, like there there are lots of high quality products that that you can get on on Amazon. And I don't know about you guys, like I, I definitely buy like nice things, but I also you know spend like probably like at least half my e-commerce dollars on Amazon, and sometimes it's for some <laughs> nice stuff, right? And for us, we were just sort of like biggest baby registry in the world is Amazon. Number one. Number two, half of all searches online, you know, or more are originated on Amazon, right? So if we want people to be aware of our brand um, and we want to create a mass, like a brand that's appealing to mass, like we need to have some product there no matter what, because otherwise somebody's going to just see like our product and they're going to do it themselves and they're going to take that spot. And so like, you know, Amazon's an important partner for us and we continue to learn from them. Totally agree with you. They can be scary too, or they can like, you know, kind of uh, be be brand dilutive, maybe if you if you don't take care of the way you're listed and things like that. But we we pay very close attention to that relationship. How are you utilizing Amazon as a complement to your owned website to pull people from Amazon into your site, and then so you can control that relationship? So that's a really tricky one because Amazon is um, very careful about making sure that you don't promote other websites in your product listing or, or drive people there. So you know, kind of best you can do is just you know, make sure that people know like of your other offerings, like when they open the package and things like that. I think the bigger thing is just I almost think of it as like display advertising or something. It's just when you're when you're appearing 
you know, in, in a search feed on, on Amazon, like, I don't know about your buying behavior, but, but for me, like very often I'll like, I'll, I'll search, I'll find something I'm interested in on Amazon. I might look at the reviews on Amazon, but I'll also probably like Google it. Maybe I'll watch a YouTube video about it. I could very well go to the store and, uh, you know, like when I do all, and especially since I know sometimes the store will like, you know, have a deal that ultimately like is, is cheaper for me than, than Amazon. And so I'll do all of that. And I end up in the, that brand's retargeting pool, right? Like I get access that way for us. Like, uh, you know, we obviously want people to take customer service concerns to us directly. Um, and we want people to know about our other products. So we try to inform them of that when they, when they're in the package. What about from like a subscription standpoint? I think it's interesting in the way brands say, I'm going to sell this section of my catalog on Amazon and not this. So how are you able to utilize maybe that approach or your subscription process to pull people from Amazon into your core site? So I think that's something that we're still working on getting great at. I mean, we, we do the things that I, I talked about, but beyond that, I think there's there's plenty more that we could do around product registry and and other things like that that we haven't we haven't optimized yet. So I think there's a lot a lot of room for us to do more cross sell uh, people who purchase product on Amazon and getting them into the subscription. We actually haven't even touched on marketing stuff, which I know we have some questions there. And for the sake of your time, I won't turn this into like a seven hour conversation because I get that okay. question all day. But Mac has some questions around team building. Okay, it's something that Nick and I talk about a lot and, and had some questions on prior to this. So Max, questions are like, do you have a COO? What are their targets? When's the right time to hire a CMO or an interim CEO? I, I'd actually maybe zoom out a little bit. You went yeah. from you and your co-founder to a team of, I think, nearly 100. Yeah. And obviously, like the path for everybody's going to be different. And it also depends on your skill set. So yeah. how did you kind of prioritize the team building? So that's one. And then two is culture is, is so important for your brand as well. So how did you, how did you hold on to that through the process as well? Yeah, team building is something I'm really passionate about. But I think like it's tricky when you're like really, really early stage because you can't have like all the strengths that you want to have at once, right? So you got to decide like where you're going to go deep. So, you know, and then also I think like the other element that's really important in all this is my co-founder and me and like, you know, kind of like where we play a role and and like both of us having an ability to flex like into all of those different functions where like we need more strength, right? So for us, you know, kind of on those two points, uh, I think we invested more in headcount in physical product development than anywhere else early on. Marketing was just basically myself and one hire to begin with. And then we used agencies and we used freelancers to help us, but we had significantly more headcount on the physical product side. That was like seed stage, like going into the A. And then even beyond the A, we were like overweighted on physical product. And then, uh, you know, kind of like post B, when we had enough traction, that's when we, we really set out to hire like experts, the very best people we could in every single function. So we got the head of growth from Allbirds to run our, our growth and our paid acquisition as an example, right? And we began building out like a real software team. And we, we brought people into the product organization with backgrounds from places like IDEO. So, um, we kind of like, that was a place, like we got to a position in terms of capital where we could go for excellence and depth in every single function at that point. But up until that point, it was a matter of deciding, okay, like where can we get by with like a skeleton crew so that we can concentrate force on whatever we think is gonna create the most value, 
the most value, like, like, and customers loving us the most. And, and in our heart of hearts, we really believe it's the product. And then, you know, the quality of the content that surrounds that. My co-founder and I, like, have done pretty much every single job. I mean, like, we've, like, along with, like, team members, like, reworked more than 5,000 boxes in a warehouse together. Um, I couldn't sleep on the right side of my body for, like, six months after that. No joke. I've written, you know, DM responses to, like, moms who are excited to get, like, a play gem full of emojis. I I don't think they knew. (laughs) They were were getting a message from a middle-aged white man. You know, like... I've designed ads and written ad copy. Um, I've built ads in like iPhone apps and, and posted them. Like, like my co-founder, you know, even, you know, last week she was writing blog posts. There's no, like she's, she's personally done, we, she's personally done QA as recently as like a, you know, a couple months ago in the warehouse. Like I did QA in the early days um, back in China uh, with, you know, shower cap on my head and the whole deal. You know, so I think you need you need a co-founder or you need a founding team that's going to be willing to just sort of like get dirty and do a lot of different things early on. In terms of like uh, you know kind of like scaling up later and what positions we prioritized, um, you know, for that same reason, like Jessica and I like hold like certain responsibilities pretty close. So I spend a lot of time on revenue and a decent amount of time on digital products and finance. Uh, she spends a ton of time on product and on content and and, a little, and some time on operations as well. So for those reasons, sort of like a traditional chief operating officer or chief marketing officer, it's not as as much of value to us, like like a layer like that, as say like a head of growth or somebody who's doing an amazing job leading content strategy. And so like at this phase of our growth, like we're more focused on, on getting what we think are like elite players who actually are stepping down in terms of company size after having scaled something else up really well. So they have the experience of doing that, but they're, they're coming down to a smaller size team that they're going to build again so that we can build like really great expertise in each of these functional areas and like kind of like build like that core team that could like get us, you know, kind of, you know, two, three X bigger than we are today. I love that. I mean, there's just so much that goes into picking the right people and it's not just the the skill set, but it's culture, and it's also the timing of when you're ready to hire and and when they're ready to make the, the leap. It's, it's it's such like a an art. I've got a ton more questions. We're somehow already at the top of the hour, so I'll ask my my final question that I always ask in a second. But I wanted to say thank you very much for joining us. I know you've got a lot going on. You're running a a, a company that is growing like crazy. I know you've shared some of your numbers <laughs> privately. And it's just insane to see your growth. I'm a very happy customer. So you're getting some some word of mouth from the Armstrong house. And I'm sure you're getting it all over the place. So very much appreciated. And then everybody in the audience. Again, I know you got a bunch going on. I appreciate you guys taking the time to come in here, ask questions, engage, share the good word of what we're trying to do here. We'll be here next Wednesday. So my last question, number one piece of advice for entrepreneurs today. I think my number one piece of advice would be to like work on managing that tension between committing to your vision and being open to feedback. And I think, I think the thing that allows you to do that is, is confidence in yourself and, and self-awareness. And so, you know, kind of surround yourself with, with people who can help you build your self-awareness and, and your, your sense of who you are so that you can both like stay committed to what you see, even when like some investors might tell you it's a bad idea, but also even with those investors, like, like hear it, and like really like unpack it and understand what you can do to make how you're communicating this vision or, or like 
mechanizing it stronger. And so I think that'd be my piece of advice. I love that. No, nobody has shared that yet. I'm going to take that to heart. Nick's always trying to get me to work on my self-awareness. And so um, perfect way to end this. Nice. Uh, thank you very much. Nick, as always, thanks for um, being the puppet master in the background and making this all possible. So thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys.